Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. I'm Scott Jones. I'll be your host. And in just a moment, we'll be joined by David Zoll, Mockingbird's founder and director, to discuss Another Weekends, which is Mockingbird's weekly roundup of some of the best content on the web that somebody with a grace-infused passion and a cosmopolitan curiosity would want to pay attention to. In his book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton remarks on the difference between a four-year-old and a 14-year-old visiting the zoo. The 14-year-old most of the time has lost a sense of wonder. The four-year-old doesn't think that there ought to just be elephants and lions and tigers and bears. I mean, everything seems like some sort of character from a fairy tale or Alice in Wonderland. But the older we get, the more quickly we get accustomed to things in the world and think they just ought to be here. Wonder, loss of The loss of wonder sometimes, often, actually begets the beginning of cynicism. How much would wonder change how we described the faith to people outside of it? How much would it change how we interacted with people that were on a different side of the political or ideological spectrum than we were? How much would a sense of wonder around the mysteries of our own lives would allow us to be a little more gracious with ourselves and the frustrating and mysterious turns sometimes our lives take despite our best efforts and sometimes involving some faults of our own. What a kinder, gentler, and more awe-inspiring world we might live in with a grace-inspired sense of wonder. All right, David, another week ends. And you're pretty excited about some stuff you've discovered this week. So tell me of all the things, what what sort of are you most passionate about right now? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I tried to, you don't, you don't want to go overboard because there have been rumors before. There have been rumors of war, uh, as we all know, but... Um, it sounds like Guns N' Roses are finally getting back together, and that has me uh, very, very excited. So that that the, sounds like the rumors might be true. If I were Vladimir Putin and looking to like raise my status in the world as as like a real benefactor, first thing I would do, I would kidnap Axel Rose, get him with like a team of therapists in Vienna, because I mean I think that's where the, the issue is, you know. And then <laughs> I get a rehabilitated Guns N' Roses. Well, I think that's what we're going to see next year. I mean, who knows if it'll be any good, but uh, it'll certainly be fun to watch. And so that's the most exciting thing that I've uh, seen this week, and I'm unrepentant about it. I think it should be uh, quite a circus in 2016 if this, in fact, happens. Appetite for Destruction is one of the great albums of my youth. I think it's a great album of anyone's youth. Yeah, and adulthood, too. I mean, I don't want to say I still don't listen to it. <laughs> I mean, you can't go to a sports game these days and not hear those riffs played over and over and over again. It's somehow they still stand tall. But I know that's not why uh, we're on this podcast to talk about Guns N' Roses. 
Now, one of the things that you kind of lead with in Another Week Ends is this piece which you make a bold statement that it's the best $1.99 that anyone will spend on the internet this week. And I'm going to say I wholeheartedly agree. This piece by Francis Spufford entitled Spiritual Literature for Atheists, which came out in First Things. Yeah, it's sort of honestly sort of kind of surprised about that. But uh, Spufford, who spoke at our conference a couple of years ago, and it's just a delightful, delightful human being. Um, he wrote this book about, uh, or he wrote this article, excuse me, about two books, one by Sam Harris and one by Barbara Ehrenreich, both of whom are kind of committed atheists, especially Harris. Ehrenreich's more of a um, journalist, I guess. But um, <clears throat> both of which are sort of uh, confessing to having spiritual experiences in their lives and trying to kind of come to grips with those uh, w- without having to sacrifice their identity as atheists. And it's it's really uh, um, delightful to read. He's just, the, as, as far as prose stylists go, he's up there with anyone on any kind of, any subject matter. But um, yeah, I'm glad you agreed because I think it's, uh, it's worth every, absolutely every penny. And, you know, what if I had said it's only worth like a dollar seventy-five? Do we still have reproach month? Yeah, I think we could, we could work it out. Sure. Something that you know that I thought was, uh, or maybe it was just in my own reading of it, but that he basically says that, especially with the, he discusses like Sam Harris and Barbara uh, Ironreich, but he said, so there's something that's wrong with the way we're talking about faith as people that our Christians would consider ourselves kind of rooted in the church, the good, the bad, and the ugliness of the whole thing. He says, there's something wrong with the way we're describing what it's like to encounter the living God, you know, the, the God of grace, the God of, of one way. If, if there's something wrong, if she really is this disconnected from the way people in the church paint a picture of what it's like to be connected to God in, in, in the story with his people. Yeah. He sees it as a colossal failure that her experience, her sort of kind of couple rather mystical experiences she's had. She couldn't find the, what he would say would be obvious connection to someone of faith, the, to God as we understand him. But so he sees it as a monumental failure because Aaron Reich, as opposed to Harris, uh, at least in Spufford's view, and I haven't read these books, but uh, seems to be quite open, and that's what makes her book so interesting because you don't really know where it's going. Everything seems to be up for grabs, and um, and so it really says something that, uh, despite her willingness to describe these experiences publicly, uh, there's still no uh, Christian or theistic God is just not a option because it seems to have nothing to do with what she experienced, which is really disappointing when you think about it. Um, so he endorses, he says we should, um, perhaps we've been talking, we haven't talked enough about our negative theology. And by that, he doesn't mean like a you know, death and darkness. He means Christians talk a lot about what we do believe our positive theology, our sort of points of doctrine, but we don't seem to allow much room for the, you know, the grand, um, the ways in which God is larger than our understanding. Uh, mystery is such like a buzzword, but I, I think that uh, 
the way he describes it, that the justice of God is something so much larger than our understanding of justice. And the, the same with the love of God, the mercy of God is something so much more dangerous and uh, in kind of almost uh, transformative, but that's even the wrong word, exhilarating than what we could give it, ever give it credit for. But she, to the extent that we feel we have to nail everything down, we, we're, I guess, closing people like Barbara Ehrenreich off from uh, making those connections. I mean, who knows, though, how open-minded she actually is. But everything I've ever read of hers, I've liked. She did that incredible book about positive thinking a few years ago. About uh, I think it's about, about like pink ribbons or something. It's it in the title, but it was uh, it was really interesting in terms of deconstructing the American silver lining uh, uh, itis. You know, she she was really merciless in that way. But anyway, Spufford on this subject is as good as anyone's going to read. I, as as more interesting and eloquent a voice as we have. You know, I was thinking as you were saying that piece about negative and positive theology. I always thought the positive theology people or the people that talk about whether it's the you know divinity of Christ or the mysteries of the cross, they sort of talk about it and then say, but at the end of the day, this stuff's all mysterious. I feel like the negative theology people are the people that say, this is all mysterious. We kind of don't know what we're talking about, but here's our best effort. And then they go to talk about it. But it seems to me that you could be in either camp and not speak with a sense of wonder or... Yeah. A, or a sense of being just transfixed and transfigured by God's scandalous grace. I mean, absolutely. It's um, that's what he's hoping to. Uh, he says to allow awe, bafflement, and uncertainty their honest place uh, is something that we've really failed to do. Um, again, the language available to us in this. Um, area it can get really corny really quickly however um, he sees it as a, a monumental failure that she cannot recognize her experience in the vast swath of Christian history and biblical witness and what have you it's a uh, yeah, it, 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 it's, but he's also hopeful in the sense that he is the one, <laughs> I think, who can articulate a lot of this stuff. And his book on apologetic does that, uh, in a way that is not flaky and not, uh, anti-doctrinal in some way that really recaptures, I think, some of that excitement, um, some of that awe, uh, the way that I, it makes me want to tell people about it. Yeah. And I was thinking also, as I was reading of the Wilder quote, that Bill and I kind of, uh, another podcast I do, New Persuasive Words, we got kind of grabbed that Wilder quote, um, that the, the, the problem in religion is a rhetorical one, finding new persuasive words for defaced or degraded ones. Mm-hmm. And I think about that as I was thinking, and this is one of the things I think Mockingbird does so well, is, is, is an ability to find new persuasive words for things that are in the tradition, in the story, but, you know, I, I've noticed, you know, when I've done teaching with undergrads, if I if I really don't understand something that well, I have to use jargon. Mm-hmm. But if I really understand it, I'm free to use a lot of different type of words to describe the concept. So one of the things you guys do, I think, in an incredibly, you know, gifted and nimble way every week, and you know, you could look at another weekend to find tons of material like this, is to be able to to, to use pictures 
it, from from popular culture or from literature to to bring these truths of the faith to light in ways that are probably a little more digestible for mm. people. Well, that's. I hope it, hope you don't just mean uh, word pictures, but also the actual images on the website. I'm always kind of proud of those. Absolutely, I'm, it's a both end, not an either or. Yeah. You also have weighed in, like everybody else, but in a way that I think is actually unique on the tolerance PC kind of foray that's going on on universities this week. So, you want to say a little bit about? your own take on the kind of back and forth we've seen between students and faculty administration at a couple of places actually across the country. But the, yeah, the article you reference is from, is from the Atlantic, right? Yeah. The Atlantic Connors Friedersdorf who's, who writes about this pretty much on a daily basis. Um, it's really difficult to talk about as everyone knows. That's one of the hard parts of this entire subject. How do you talk about tolerance? Um, how do you talk about these extremely sensitive issues without getting pilloried. But um, that's what we've, uh, that's what we sort of saw in this video at Yale of this undergraduate just absolutely um, outrageously yelling at this, at the master of her residential college. And um, so I, I, we've written about it quite a bit. I feel like I've sort of said what I wanted to say about the whole subject of um, what we're seeing. I think it really boils down to two major uh, aspects. I think, first of all, there's a complete um, crisis of meaning, a real uh, an absolute dearth of any kind of uh, purpose in people's lives. Maybe it's a post-religion thing. Maybe it's just the despair at the heart of kind of secular America. But um, this, this, whatever it is, the kind of the uh, championing the marginalized and the people who actually really do need championing, the, those who have been outcast – makes people feel so good and righteous. It's like an addiction that they, it's so exciting to feel like your life matters, that something matters because you're so afraid that nothing does so that you just kind of, it's a constant, like a winnowing down of who is the most righteous. And so it becomes, I think someone called it an offensiveness sweepstakes. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a no win scenario. It's just kind of, it, there's it. There's no uh, way to win this game. It's just a closed circle. But then the other thing that's going on, um, uh, to at least w- what I can see, is uh, the way that power works. You know, the ideological shift in this country, which has gone from, I guess, right to left, and you know, those who have uh, been bullied are now uh, find themselves bullying. And it's not that's not the nature of the left or the right. That's the nature of power. Maybe that's a cynical view, but I see it borne out to depressing effect all around us. Because right now what's really happening in this PC debate is sort of a people on the left um, going after people on the left. That's it, it's, a, it's a different group, a different demographic than it used to be. It's not left-right. It's really left-on-left, left, if you will. So it, it's got to be something about, about power, about human nature, not just about left or right. It's about when you have power, you don't want to give it up and you want to use it to um, subjugate those who disagree with you. And uh, it's a, it's a huge false bill of goods. I could, I, I feel it doesn't bring out the best side of me, frankly. That's why I don't like talking about it that much because I'm right here at Charlottesville and university of Virginia. And I feel for these kids. That's what I really wanted to, the fresh thing that I felt I had to say this week is that um, 
they're, they're, these are 19, 20, 21 year old kids and not to sound patronizing, but you know, they've always, who didn't make big mistakes when they were 19, 20, 21 years old. And we just didn't have them broadcast across social media and the subject of like pundit commentary. And some people are saying that they said, a, why are we listening so much to kids who, you know, especially when we're, everyone is decrying how um, long prolonged adolescence there is. No one's growing up, you know, everyone is a child for much, much longer. They don't get married till you know, they're 35. So you're delaying adulthood all the time. But then, you know, the, the fallout of that is that you're in adolescent for a lot longer. So why are we listening to these kids so much slash? Why aren't we more forgiving of the fact that they may be saying some things that they'll come to regret and uh, on issues that make them feel extremely righteous? Um, so I feel for uh, the students involved. I feel for the professors that are losing their jobs. You know, all my friends in academia, liberal academia, especially, they're just they're frightened. They're frightened about saying the wrong thing. And they weren't always that way because theoretically you get a tenure. And you don't have to be frightened about anything. But I guess it's all up for grabs. So I, as you can tell, I have a lot to say. I also think that you've seen uh, when original sin goes out the window um, in terms of how people understand themselves, you have the only uh, what, what's happened is we've replaced that with the, um, the only moral language that has much value or currency these days is the language of grievance. And um, if you combine that with a sort of uh, performancist, um, helicopter parenting uh, sh- uh, bubble, you get a really uh, awful situation where outbursts like this happen and will continue to happen. And, you know, there before the grace of God go all of us. So, And I, I think what's interesting about it too, right, is it is I really liked how you talked about the, 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 the yearning for meaning, right? And, and, you know, Part of that is like we don't feel like an object or a cognitive machine. We feel like a real subject, like who we are matters. But what happens is I feel like the people you're advocating for become objects, as do the people you see maligning them or oppressing them. So every, every you become kind of a subject for a moment, but it's almost at the cost of other subjectivity. It's kind of like the opposite of like the Pope Francis effect, where whether he's with like you know, John Boehner or or a kid with cerebral palsy, there's this subjectifying effect. He makes them feel humanized. He makes them feel fully alive. He makes them feel, you know, and it's not a zero-sum game. It's not that he's a subject or he is. The, the, the both of them, there's an I-thou thing that, that really happens, as opposed to like an I-it thing. Yeah, yeah. I think you're 100% right. I mean, how else could you spit on people that you disagree with over Halloween costumes if you haven't made them into an it? Uh, but vice versa. How else can you dress up like a uh, like an insensitive, you know, something that's meant to provoke if you haven't kind of turned the other person or their group into an it? Uh, you know, the, the unspoken thing I can't help but come back to is the week that we've sent out this technology issue is that it, the disembodiment afforded by our uh, devices really does, I think, contribute exacerbate the situation. And I think we'll, I, I mean, I have some hope that we'll figure this out, but it probably is going to get worse before it gets better. Um, it's, it's written, you know, left, it, it's from top to bottom. This is like a theological illustration. Um, but of course this is also people's lives <laughs> and marriages and kids. That actually brings me to one more thing I want to talk about with you that I actually thought was very interesting. This 
post you you mentioned by Addie Zierman on learning to love my cynic voice. And uh, Addie mentions here, is Addie a male or female? I'm not sure. No, female. Female. Okay, Addie says that she uh, that she seems to not be able to stop believing in this kind of narrative that where you are is that narrative that where you get past things and then you are past them for good or where life journey is sort of onward and upward it's yeah. just, as opposed to, you know, a kind of one step forward, two steps back, a spiraling around a mountain where sometimes you're going down and up and sometimes you can't even see whether you're ascending or descending. I thought that like, is it really, I was thinking about what you were just saying about parenting that seems like a much more liberating perspective, not just on your own story, but then enabling you to be more gracious with other people's story, whether they're college students or provocateurs or whoever it may be. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. That this is that narrative arc that it's essentially that's just code word for the law that you must be getting better and better and be healing more and more and more. And so they can't account for the fact that some wounds, or in this case, this woman, her cynicism keeps coming back and she puts pressure on herself to not feel that way. I do not want to say these things, but that of course makes it, makes it all the more, all the worse. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, um, what would I say about that? that I haven't said, um, I, the idea of a Christian life as not that it's not a, you know, the word journey is a good, good word, I guess, but it's, it also, it implies too much progress, uh, or at least a linear, a linear narrative doesn't really make sense of people's lives. Uh, I, well, I think Luther talked about it being like an abyss, standing on the edge of an abyss rather than sort of hiking along a trail from what point A to point B. Um, might've been someone else like the, it's also that Kierkegaardian sort of anxiety of looking down. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that um, we do people a disservice by, especially when it comes to the psychological wounds of life, you know, we can just, just get over it, just get over it. It doesn't mean people can't get over things, but oftentimes they were there over it for a while and then something triggers it and use that, that, that terrible word, something, uh, it comes back. So how do we allow for that? Does God love people that still uh, are dealing with the same basic things that they were dealing with 25 years ago? I think so. You know, I, th- I think that um, that uh, those wounds will be healed, but only in part right now. Yeah, and I one of the things you said that is interesting that you said that, that kind of onward and upward linear journey doesn't make sense of people's lives, right? If we're honest, if we're observant. But for some reason, we think it ought to make sense of our lives. And so, like, we get older. That that's linear. <laughs> you know, we always linear. like. We, I feel like we're always trying to tell ourselves stories. It, like we look for any bit of evidence, or it's not one step forward, two steps back, or where it is clear that there's. And, and then we kind of do an editorial project because we feel pressure to do that. And maybe even if it involves not looking at our lives honestly. And, and really with, you know, without rose colored lenses on. Yeah. Idiot, editorializing your own life is a exhausting task. Uh, take it from someone who <laughs> is writing these columns every single week. But, uh, uh, you know, it's also dynamic. I think it's a privilege, but, um, when it comes to our, when we're editorializing to ourselves, 
we get into some real dicey territory of denial and um, compromise our relationship not only with God and uh, other people, but with ourselves. Well, David, thanks. This is a great end to another week. And I'd say that everybody out there listening should check out Another Weekends, which they can find at mbird.com. They can find it there. And uh, the only thing I would ask this week is that if people could join me <laughs> in praying that this uh, Guns N' Roses reunion would actually happen uh, and that it would involve some new music. I think that would be extremely exciting and that would give me uh, personally a reason to um, look forward to 2016 beyond uh, the many reasons I already have. But that is uh, something that I'll be praying about. I'm not kidding. I care about these people. Uh, and I was listening to Use Your Illusion on the way back from the airport the other day and just couldn't get over how good it was. Uh, the, the introductions to those songs, they're all like two minutes long, and they're all great. So uh, thanks for listening to these early podcasts. I'm sure we're going to uh, regret them one day. But thank you, Scott. Thank you, David, and thank you to all our listeners. May you have a graced and wonderful weekend that's full of wonder, and be kind to yourselves. Until next time. <laughs>